Hello, Avril Danchak here. Welcome to Teaching and Learning Consultation Skills Module 12, Managing Uncertainty in the Consultation, taking a deep dive into all aspects of uncertainty so that clinicians can manage it better and in less stressful ways. Hello and welcome to this podcast about the uncertainties that can give clinicians uncertainty in the analysing quadrant. This is the situation where one clinician and one patient are together and the clinician experiences a what do you do and you don't know what to do moment because the diagnosis or the problem seems uncertain. Now, if the patient has, for example, rectal bleeding, the root cause may be unclear, but the way forwards is clear examination, investigations, and that might include referral for relevant endoscopy. And that's not a what you do and you don't know what to do moment. What we're talking about are times when the nature of the problem is not clear cut or where clinicians are struggling to formulate a diagnosis or problem definition. So I'm very delighted to welcome today Dr. Alison Lee to discuss some tricky cases where analysing uncertainty plays a big part. Hello, Alison. Hi, Avril. How are you? Alison, your insights and your research skills really kicked off all the work on on uncertainty that you and I have done together. And that resulted in the book Mapping Uncertainty in Medicine, What Do You Do When You Don't Know What To Do? And that in turn inspired this podcast series. So can I ask you what your current roles are? Uh, Yeah, so I'm currently a GP with extended role in frailty, um, Associate Medical Director at our local hospital, and a lead educator for Health Education England, NHS England. Right, okay, so you're spread widely across education and clinical roles. Okay, so in a what you do and you don't know what to do situation, the clinician kind of needs to stand back mentally if the diagnosis is the problem, and they have to think about which kind of approaches are going to be most relevant. Now, some of this will be based on the information they have already, so clues or cues in the history, bearing in mind the patient's own thoughts, concerns and worries and patient's own expectations. And these are explored in TALP module three about effective information gathering skills. But Alison, could you say something a little bit more about this standing back and thinking things through approach? Yeah, thanks. Um, So sometimes um, the need to stand back is uh, not known by you sometimes. Um, And you end up down a rabbit hole of trying to get out of this difficult and uncertain place because it makes you feel anxious. Um, But if you recognise that, there are some tips and techniques to help give you that thinking space, particularly examination, blood pressures might be useful, or even uh, checking the medical records just to give give you that thinking space. And then when you are thinking you might be able to have a think about what you want to think about or ask some more questions to help decide what to do next. So this this is a kind of idea where you're using something in the consultation, maybe checking the blood pressure or something to give you a bit of time. And then you've got this idea, you can start to think about what your thinking ought to be like. And that we call that metacognition, which is a really peculiar word, but it's cropped up a lot in this series. And of course it means thinking about your thinking uh, by calming down, stepping back and saying, what shall I do next? So I I was wondering if you'd like to introduce a case scenario that we might discuss that would then help to illustrate some of these things. Thank you very much. So here is Mrs Ringway. She is 
age 45 and is being seen in person after phoning in and describing feeling very unwell and dizzy all of the time. She staggers in saying, I really need something for this terrible dizziness. My husband had to drive me here and take time off. All I want is some tablets for it right now. Well, this is definitely the kind of situation where some clinicians get a bit stuck. Why, why do you think that is? Yeah. Um, so for me, there is quite a lot of pressure and emotional overlay in this in this scenario. Um, and you'll be dragged into a management plan, management option before you've had a chance to examine and analyse the problem that they've come in with. And that will feel uncomfortable. Um, so you'll need some strategies to uh, start from the beginning um, and give yourself some opportunities to take history, do an examination and think it through. Right. Well, I think that's really important because I, I would just like to highlight the core skills of TALC Module 1, which are about beginning the consultation effectively and also by preparing by reading the notes, maybe, which might give some clues as to why this person feels so bad at this moment. But also having some skills to enable her to talk and explain herself, which gives you information and also gives you some thinking time. And the skills of TALC Module 2 in building a relationship and showing some empathy and concern will help her to relax and calm down, while the skills of TALC 3 gathering information will help you to understand. Now, given the, there's going to be quite a lot of information coming in, probably, I'm wondering what kind of thinking strategy might be useful here, do you think? Yeah, I, you certainly need a strategy in this scenario. Um, I don't know about you, but dizziness is one of the uh, uh, presentations that might give me a palpitation or two because it's so difficult to to uh, get to the bottom of. Um, but in terms of, of a couple of strategies, um, you could start by uh, thinking through a couple of uh, diagnoses and testing them out. So first diagnosis might be um, along the vertigo line. So is this a labyrinthitis, uh, benign positional vertigo or something central causing the, the vertigo? Or is this a uh, syncope, pre-syncope type dizziness where somebody feels faint rather than describes the symptoms of uh, room spinning, disequilibrium and feeling wobbly? Mm. Uh, so I'd, I'd probably split it into those two broad strategies. Am I dealing with a vertigo and, and explore that? Or am I dealing with a syncope, a pre-syncope, faint type uh, presentation and ask questions along those lines i think it's really interesting there how, how helpful it is to have some not very specific diagnosis but some broad general um kind of ideas to be thinking about and i think one of the things i would also add in here is you've mentioned how the clinician can feel a bit anxious because it's a vague symptom there are i, I can i could probably say that almost any illness could make you feel dizzy really it's not very specific symptom it doesn't narrow it down very much but also the patient's quite anxiety because she said, I, I want a tablet straight away. So actually, you know, calming things down, letting her finish her opening statement, showing some empathy, saying it sounds like you feel quite 
horrible today and I'm sure we'll be able to find the right kind of tablet or something to help you. I need more information to make sure we get the right thing. We'll often reduce anxiety in the patient enough and those will also give you a bit of thinking time as well, won't they? Yeah, that makes absolute sense um, because I'd probably want to understand um, what's driving that urgent need for a tablet, what's going, what's going on with her behind that and why she needs a quick fix so maybe there's something important going on tomorrow and she doesn't want to feel poorly but so i'd be exploring that as well as yeah, i think one of the things you're highlighting there is that understanding where the patient's coming from perhaps their own thoughts about the dizziness or also what it is that's making this feel so bad and so urgent that they've given you this very clear expectation of a, of a tablet straight away it's not a luxury add-on. It can really help you understand what's going on and how the whole thing is, is fitting together, can't it? Yeah. Now, I know a lot of people would kind of start with a full systems review with lots of closed questions. And you often hear in experienced clinicians, the patient says something like, I feel dizzy, I want some tablets. And they start saying things like, is it worse when you stand up? Have you been vomiting? Lots of closed questions. Um, what is there any problem with that kind of strategy do you think a couple of things i think i think that the you're not rapport building going straight into that approach um and um i'd like to hear what the patient means by their dizziness because that can give you a lot of clues and information uh before you even go down that route mm. um if you go into closed questions um i you know, I know why we we do it. You want to rule out the red flags, but actually you might rule out the wrong red flags if you don't look at the big picture. So I'd be asking for, uh, I would be seeking understanding about the dizziness that our patient is experiencing and work from that basis. So these are information gathering skills, which is like saying things like, tell me more about or exactly what is it like when you feel dizzy? What kind of things bring it on? How long does it last for? All these kind of uh, uh, clarifying questions. And I, and I know you've talked in the past about something called premature closure, which I think people also sometimes cause, call search satisfying. Now, what is that and why is it important for us to avoid that? Uh, that that's a really interesting um, phrase. We, um, uh, cognitive bias. So instead of looking for reasons why it isn't one of our hypotheses what we tend to search for sometimes is why it is our first hypothesis because it feels quick we feel certain and then we can get on with dealing with it um, but sometimes it takes us to a place that uh, we close the consultation we close the information gathering down too soon and it does lead to errors um it might be what the patient wants but it doesn't help us to be medically accurate we need to be trying to rule things out not rule things in i think that's really interesting because that kind of thought pattern where you're trying to rule things in is a little bit like a sort of algorithm or a tree isn't it where you you go up a trunk and you say oh we go down this branch and then we're going to go down this branch and oh lo and behold we get to the the answer at the end whereas there's a very interesting article um in the lancet actually quite a few years ago by a guy called ejm campbell who said that this kind of um 
early diagnostic thinking, when you're starting off with something that is not yet clear, it's not like following an algorithm. It's more like constructing a map, uh, like a whole picture rather than a specific thing. And that you should keep your mind open and listen to all the different information coming in so that you're kind of populating a map of what it's like. And I think in primary care, we need to populate a map of physical symptoms, the psychological meaning, and as you said before, perhaps the social context, what's going on for this person. And when you've got that map, then you can start to say, well, where are we on this map? What, what are the red flags that are important for this patient? Because they might be quite difficult to find if you go in straight away, because the red flags for somebody who perhaps has got syncope or postural hypotension are going to be different from the ones from somebody who's got true vitigo with the room spinning round uh, and vomiting or something like that. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Um, I was going to just say, I suppose that the temptation is to go in too soon and close off, particularly if both parties are feeling overwhelmed. But um, information gathering, both of the physical context, emotional context and social context, will give you quite a lot of information first. And as we've already said, does build the build um, rapport. It's not to be underestimated, though, how hard it is to listen well, um, especially if there is that um, uh, fear or worry in the room. Um, so it is something that needs thought and practice. Um, and don't be put off by it. And don't be put off when it feels difficult. That's actually OK. I think that's right. And it's useful to have some phrases kind of in your back pocket uh, for this. I mean, sometimes you need to say something like, look, you're feeling really ill. This this symptom is important. We need to really understand it. I don't yet feel I've fully understood what it's like or fully understood all the things that I need to know about. Can I just ask you to tell me more about this? Or please, will you expand on what you said about being sick or Please, could you, and can I look at some other things like, could we just go through what medications you're taking in some detail? Because that can sometimes be a cause of this. So that you've got some kind of phrases to structure why it is you're not jumping in with the answer. And I think most times, if you share your thinking in that way and your reasoning, people actually like to know that you're thinking hard about them or that you want more information. They won't necessarily take that amiss as long as you explain why you're not just yeah. writing a prescription. And to do that and signpost is important because the patient may feel like you're dismissing their request for the tablet. So just communicating that you need more information and the reason for it and how you're going to do it, mm. that will really help because they might feel put off, dismissed, and then give you quite short, closed questions if you don't explain why you're doing what you're doing i think that's absolutely true and the, the other thing is to explain why you're asking certain questions so um i think for example my favorite one is somebody who's breathless and then somebody says well are your legs swelling now to a doctor that makes complete sense because you're looking for signs of fluid overload or whatever but for a patient it makes no sense at all it makes like why are they suddenly talking about my legs it's my breathing that's the problem whereas if you say and particularly in dizziness you say there can be different causes of dizziness so I want to focus on your ears for a minute because sometimes it's from your ears 
have you had any discharge from your ears or have you had hearing problems or something sometimes it comes from something happening in your brain so you know how long have you been vomiting are you having blah blah is there anything are you taking blood pressure tablets or things like that then people understand why you're asking a particular kind of question don't they yeah so how you structure your consultation can help you aid your thinking and diagnostic reasoning mm. so um uh having those phrases um and having a way to uh progress through the tasks of a consultation can help you order your thinking at the same time i think that's very important that's another way a, another kind of metacognition in a way isn't it that that you're thinking about your thinking and giving yourself time to think now, I mean, that we can think about um, three different, I think a lot of different things have two or three different broad causes, like you've mentioned, true vertigo might be from your ear, or it might be from something central, but other dizziness might be due to syncope, which might be due to sepsis or hypotension or whatever. Um, but there are some sort of structured ways of, of helping to think about this. And um, I know we sometimes talk about Marshall Marinka's analysis of the role of the specialist and the generalist. And as generalists, the Marinka says you should marginalise danger, explore probability and manage uncertainty. So can you say something about what marginalising danger means in this context? Yeah, this is really useful. Um so the three things in that statement, marginalising danger, explore probability and manage uncertainty, um, mean a couple of things. Marginalising danger is where you effectively try and rule out the things you really shouldn't be missing. Uh, stroke, TIA in this context. Um, uh, I guess severe hypotension as well. You know, if somebody's septic or, or bleeding or something like that. So, this, they're the diagnoses you don't want to miss and your red flags. Explore probability means, well, in this context, with this patient, what is most likely? So you think about what the most likely diagnoses actually are. Yeah, so can, can I just pick up on, a, on that a bit? Because, for example, a stroke is much less likely in a 25-year-old than a 75-year-old, for example, and... Um, bleeding is much more likely in an alcoholic who's been taking non-steroidals or whatever um, than it is in, in, in somebody who's otherwise fit and well and doesn't consult very often sort of thing. So kind of biography matters as much as biology here, doesn't it? Yeah. And chronology. So have they been to you before? Mm. Um, how long has this gone on for? Mm. Um those type of things. I, yeah. I think chronology is re a really interesting one because it can be really, particularly when people are anxious uh, and wanting a fix, it can be really useful to say, look, just start at the very beginning of when what, what's going on and tell me about it from the beginning and just listen because they'll nearly always tell you an awful lot of useful stuff if you just listen carefully. Um, something about Restricted rule out. You've talked about ruling things out before. Can, can you say a bit more about how probability fits in with the idea of ruling things out as well? Sure. So in the context of dizziness, I suppose uh, the things that you would want to rule out or ask about with vertigo or dizziness is you might want to talk about fast symptoms and the onset of the problem. And you might want to look at balance. Mm. Uh, because it might be posterior circulation 
uh, cerebellar signs, all that type of thing. So you'd look at that specifically. And mm. then you could say, well, I've ruled out as best I can at this point, uh, whether it's symptoms of a stroke or a TIA. So that's your restricted rule out. It's not giving you a fuller picture, but it's helping you rule something out. I think that's really interesting. And one thing that um, doctors often talk to me about and other clinicians indeed as well, um, it often crops up, for example, with poorly children. They say, well, how far do you go to rule out the dangerous thing or to my, you know, does every child who's got a fever need a, a lumbar puncture, for example, because obviously you're worried about meningitis in every child with a fever. It crosses your mind. The question is, how far do you go to rule it out? Do you have any thoughts about that kind of thing? So this is where you kind of manage that uncertainty, because as with the best will in the world, a GP cannot actually rule anything out what you're what you're doing is seeing if something is more or less likely mm-hmm. and with a with um i think dizziness is a hard one to um uh do this example with um but um with the idea of what is most common um and with the idea of what you're testing for what what is your pretest probability? So I'm thinking about Bayesian uh, reasoning here. Um, if I in it somebody with dizziness in this context um, who's anxious about a social circumstance, you might end up thinking ruling out as best you can a stroke. The most likely thing is it might be anxiety related or because they've been so busy they're a bit dehydrated and it from that point of view um you're gonna have to manage that uncertainty still so you could say i I can't remember who said this but um there's a book called um i don't know what it is but i know it's i don't think it's i don't think it's serious yeah that's right so you have to manage that uncertainty so you have to say um we think it's this. Mm. Um, the reason why we think it, this is because of X, Y, and Z. And uh, we would expect the course of this illness to go like that. So you'd, you'd explain the, the prognosis. And then you'd talk about, well, what you wouldn't expect to happen. So you wouldn't expect uh, A, B, and C, D to happen. And that's how you manage that uncertainty by this diagnostic safety netting that isn't just come back if you don't feel any better or call us up if you're worried. Mm. It's specific uh, specific safety netting based on the person, mm. based on the presenting symptoms, your most likely diagnosis and what you want, what you don't want them to miss. Mm. And you need to help them with that. Mm. So I think that that's really important because I think sometimes people think safety netting is just saying uh, get in touch again if you're not right or something. And that isn't particularly helpful. But the other aspect of safety netting comes even before you say that. If you explain why you think the certain situation, you know, why you've made a certain assessment and how you came to your conclusions, then they're in possession of the same kind of thinking as you. And they're much more likely to understand the safety netting that you're suggesting, aren't they? So that that explaining your clinical reasoning to yourself and to the patient is a, also a crucial part of the safety net. And I think that's often missed out, actually. 
Yeah. And explaining your reasoning to the patient and yourself allows you to just double check that your your own thinking isn't flawed, that you've not yeah. actually that you might need to change your mind over something. So that's yeah. it is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And then with safety netting is um you can it's really good to be very clear about if a certain symptom or sign does arise what the appropriate action is mm. it wouldn't be just call us up it would be um if if it's just if it's still no better but x y and z haven't occurred we'll see you again in x time frame but if a b c d occur fever rash blotches mm. uh unable to uh keep fluid down uh reduce urine output then the appropriate response would be something more urgent and more more, more urgent. yeah so it allows you the diagnostic safety netting certainly allows you to catch the changing nature evolving nature of illnesses because we see things at such a early part of the uh, course of the illness um or midway we actually don't know how things are going to go so that is a really good mm. technique to do um and document properly yeah i think that's that's so important and it's it's very interesting because i'd i'd like to just also to come back to the thing you mentioned about chronology is that as you say sometimes in primary care we're seeing things fairly early on in the presentation and so for example if somebody who never consults you consults on monday tuesday and wednesday about the same symptoms and they say it's getting worse then that chronology is in itself a sign, even if the symptoms don't seem much different, but they're, they're saying something very important there. Uh, and I know that when we've looked at diagnostic errors, it's often where that changing uh, status over perhaps a shorter time frame than you might expect is, is ignored. And certainly some of the high profile cases that have been in the news recently have been about where evolving illnesses haven't been sort of somehow taken seriously. Um, I'm going to sort of suggest how this scenario might go if all those skills and ideas that you've talked about were put into place. I mean, I think the clinician will listen to the full story of the dizziness, how it started, what it feels like, and they'll avoid interruptions initially and use a lot of encouraging phrases like, you know, go on, tell me more, what next? What else has she noticed wrong, for example? And, and listening for clues about whether this might be hypotension, like it might be worse when she stands up, or by brain issues like a cerebellar disorder, which might be more intractable dizziness with vomiting, and there might be unsteadiness or clumsiness or something like that. Or by ear problems, you know, has she been deaf? Is the discharge, is the pain in the ear? Has there been a recent viral infection? So perhaps it will likely emerge that the dizziness started two days before, there was some vomiting at first, which stopped. And that does tend to suggest it's peripheral rather than central, because if it's a central thing, the vomiting will persist. There was a bit of pain and, and some discharge in the left ear. Now, that does connect the dizziness to the ear, but dizziness after middle ear symptoms could indicate an infection spreading into the mastoid. And this hypothesis allows a very focused examination. So let's say the blood pressure is normal with no postural drop, no cerebellar signs, but there is some tenderness over the mastoid area with some discharge from the ear. It now starts to become a lot clearer what's going on. And the puzzle here isn't, oh dear, there's lots of causes of dizziness, but actually how do I get the ENT surgeons involved with this potentially difficult situation? 
So I'm wondering how you think the patient might respond, you know, if she's then discovers that she's going to be referred, what do you think she might be saying then? Well, you, again, I'd be really wanting to know why the urgent nature for the tablets, because I'd need to know how I'm going to explain my next steps in terms of the medical management but they need to marry that with her ideas concerns and expectations mm. um, and uh, when I understand that and say it's something like well I need a tablet because it's my daughter's wedding tomorrow and um, well I'll be saying well the best way to get you to your daughter's wedding um, is to get you uh, seen by a specialist to allow the appropriate treatment and follow-up to happen uh, to allow us to get there, get you there. If we delay or give you something in the meantime, you might get worse mm. uh, such that you'll miss the, the whole thing. Medically speaking, this does need treatment um, that has got some significant uh, long-term problems and we don't, we want to stop that from happening as well. Yeah, I think putting it in the context like that is really important, isn't it? Because you can see why somebody wants to go to a big event like a wedding, but at the same time, you don't want them to become, neither they nor their daughter will want them to become severely ill because something's been neglected. And again, it's about um, you you will have gathered some of that information before you even examine them or make a final decision about what you think the problem is and bringing that information in and saying, well, you, earlier on you said you're flying to America tomorrow. We, we need to think about that because if you're on an airplane, the effect on your ear will be this and it could lead to that and that could lead to quite long-term problems. And it's going to be very disappointing if you can't go to America, but your best chance of being on that plane is to see an ENT person quite shortly you know this evening sort of thing so you can bring those things into the um into the conversation and it may just be you know i, I can't bear these symptoms it's awful uh, fine i'll go and see an ent person but you might say okay I'll, I'll give you something to take in the meantime while you're waiting in casualty sort of thing i mean there are many different ways to handle it according to that contextual information but it's not a luxury to know where the patient's coming from is it no it's not a luxury it's really important to know it's uh, absolutely critical when you're moving from uh, diagnosis into into management. And th those informations need to come as part of the explanation. So th thank you. I think that's been a very interesting discussion of a slightly tricky problem to think about how you can make your clinical reasoning more methodical. One thing I, I think is true for many symptoms is that they often have these big sort of um I think of them as big lumps attached to them. So dizziness we've talked about already, but for example, even symptoms like jaundice, you know, it could be prehepatic like hypolysis or a, a hepatic cause like hepatitis or post-hepatic like an obstruction. What's the obstruction caused by? Or anemia can be caused by not enough iron coming in or the bone marrow not doing its job or too much blood getting lost somewhere. And if you have those sort of broad structuring ideas, it helps you to think about symptoms that may in themselves be a little bit vague. Um, and combining that clinical reasoning with effective consultation skills is gonna make you more active, more accurate actually, and more effective, and is actually more time efficient. Do, do you think, would you agree with that, that it's more time efficient to do it properly like this? Absolutely. Um, I'm hesitating because 
the time efficiency may come from uh, the initial consultation, but it might be it stops the patient coming back again, so it's more time efficient for them. Um, but from our point of view, it's about being medically accurate, as best medically accurate as you can at the time when you see them. And that's something about effectiveness rather than efficiency, actually, because I think sometimes I've certainly met some inefficient, inefficient, well, inexperienced, I'd say. I think inexperienced clinicians are often inefficient, but they think the efficient thing is to get the patient out of the room to sort of to finish the consultation, which can often just lead to kicking the can down the road so that somebody else has to see them. And to have two consultations where you only need one is not very efficient, actually. So we should be thinking about effectiveness as much as efficiency, I think, um, and using our time fully and effectively, not just trying to be quick. Because uh, as you say, sometimes doing the job properly can save two or three consultations further down the line. And that that's a big thing. And if we do think things through, our investigations may be a lot more targeted and un- and uh, come with a bit of understanding as to why certain tests or next steps are being done. They're a lot clearer, so the outcomes of which can be interpreted in a in a more uh, meaningful way. Well, Alison, you've really helped us to segue into the next quadrant here because the next set of podcasts will actually be about that very thing, about the networking quadrant, which is about how you select and use tests, investigations and referrals, particularly when the diagnosis is unclear. And there are specific skills you can use to navigate the large number of tests and investigations because a lot of uncertainty can arise there if we don't approach that appropriately. So thank you very much for that interesting discussion and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Avril. Lovely to see you. Thank you for listening to Talk 12 on managing uncertainty in consultations. Make sure to get all the episodes by subscribing to the Talc Talks podcast on Podbean or your other podcast provider. All the podcasts and the other teaching and learning consultation skills materials are available at consultationskills.com. Our book, Mapping Uncertainty in Medicine, What Do You Do When You Don't Know What To Do? by myself, Avril Danchak, Alison Lee and Geraldine Murphy is available online and through all good bookshops.